0: Hey, Bethia. Just before you start,
1: this show looks at domestic abuse head-on. This particular episode uncovers Rory's experience as a support worker within family and domestic violence services.
0: It documents the burden put on victim survivors to educate services on how best to support those recovering. It is a bit heavy at times, so be gentle with yourself. Listen with care. And know that support is readily available for any unpleasant feelings that might come up. Check out our website for a list of people you can speak to if the going gets tough. I am sitting patiently as men and women in blue gather in a small room. Noticing tiny but discernible gestures of camaraderies amongst and between them. A smile, a tap, a nod. They are like one another each in their matching ensemble, or at least they look similar. They're excited too, fresh-faced and ready to join the Australian police force, wanting only one thing, to catch the bad guys. But to understand the villain, the hooded lawbreaker, the enemy of the state, the police needed to ask Ron, to speak to, or at least observe, somebody who understands intimately what it means to fear for their own life in the way that I did. Their curiosity was laced with questions and concerns. Why weren't they summoned earlier? What was I scared of, exactly? How could they have stopped it? You're probably wondering how I got here. Surrounded by newly enlisted police officers, as they each eagerly wait for me to address them. To speak to them head on about the state of domestic violence in this country to offer them insight, and perhaps even some kind of consolation that they're doing enough, or at least that what is enough isn't too far out of reach. Carol, the police officer who tended to my case, had invited me to talk directly to my experience. Under the guise that that alone, my sheer existence was able to offer a kind of expertise to those on the front line. Something important, in many ways, The gesture itself of standing before the force in a training room at the police academy suggested that I had all the answers, that they were embedded in my recollection of the events that took place. My understanding that my after was informative, was sufficient, was enough, or rather was resolved. But the questions I was met with were larger and more compounded than I anticipated. What happened to me shocked an entire group of young enlistees, fondling their badges, keen to source or at least settle the issue at bay. The questions were obvious, offensive even, and centred around my identity in ways that seemed deeply
1: unnecessary,
0: as if the knowledge that I was a Muslim woman and a migrant was tied intimately to me being a survivor of domestic abuse
1: police officers are not built to do this. What they're built to do and the the standpoint that they come from is a violent standpoint. There is this notion, but also this ignorance in society that says, let's liken policing with safety.
0: That's Karina Hogan, an Aboriginal and South Sea Islander woman, ABC journalist and board director with Children's Hospital Queensland and Sisters Inside.
1: When you take these violent systems and have an expectation that they're going to somehow shift the deck chairs on the Titanic, then you're kind of shooting yourself in the foot, in a sense, and and you're making the situation worse. Um, They cannot cope with what domestic violence is, because what domestic violence is, is well beyond their scope. You cannot solve violence with violence. It is just not a solution.
0: See, in Australia we are told that we occupy the land of dreams the freedom country, that anything is possible. The project itself of colonialism and the burgeoning free-for-all mentality tells us that we can be whatever we want to be on Australian soil. I see this as somebody who believed that, who in the midst of my confusion and abuse felt obligated to remind myself that this is Australia, that nobody can hurt you here, the Australian dream. In his 2016 address at the Ethics Centre, journalist and regeryman Stan Grant reminded his audience that at the heart of Australian Dream, an abstract ideology he described fondly and critically, lives racism, lives injustice, addressing intimately the impact of colonisation and discrimination against First Nations people. Stan Grant cut straight to the complex and ingrained source of strain in Australia's side. That in this country the Australian dream is reserved only for some. But I knew now, and knew then, that domestic violence was a pervasive and national threat that affected all women, Muslim or otherwise. And it was my job to educate, to cultivate, to help.
1: When we talk about police and the responsibility falling on the victim, that's how the system's set up. It's just how it's set up. If you can't prove yourself, then it's not going to serve you. So you'll end up just becoming another statistic.
0: I joined committees. I talked in depth about child protection, about the nuances of legal system that more often than not didn't center the safety and wellness of the women and children it vowed to protect. I was invited to speak at hospitals to rehash my experience in poorly air-conditioned public halls, to attend perpetrator behaviour programme, observing men shift uncomfortably in their seats, struggling to look me in the eye, to make sense of my wounds. As I wriggled my way into a sector I understood only from the perspective of a victim-survivor, as I was reminded, be it by my own admittance or the heartening encouragement of those around me, that my experience counted for something larger, something more monumental and telling, that my experience counted for more than the sort of thing you can learn in a textbook about women. Power and control. My confidence grew. I was a woman who had seen a kind of hell, who knew it intimately. I had memorized its architecture, and given that, I could identify it. I could spell it out for others, It was a hell I shared with Australian women everywhere. A hell I was determined to make sense of. By the time I met Rebecca West, a police officer who was presented during my trial, my voice had ballooned into something of significance. I was a survivor, and with that came an expertise, a knowingness. By the time I met Rebecca Who was on the board of the Patricia Giles Centre for Nonviolence, an organisation that delivered and delivers still a range of services and programmes that respond to family violence and homelessness. I was ready and I wasn't the only one.
2: I guess when I first started there was this sense of heaviness in the the collective narrative of sexual assault and and the frequency and the proximity of sexual assault in my community and our community. And I think that happiness turned into a sense of comfort with, with lived experience in this field. I think that turned into comfort and there is comfort in the collective of sexual assault and the collective of trauma. You just heard from Kat,
0: a social worker based in Melbourne, who shares with me something intimate and fixed, both a desire to help or rather to aid survivors and institutional structure designed to support them and an experience traumatic and taxing. Like myself, Kat is a victim survivor too, and this informs her practice, her passion, and her daily life. Like myself, Kat brings into her profession a kind of practical knowledge that cannot be summarized on a person's resume.
2: I think that lived experience is really important in in fields in social work. I think there might be a sense of preferred or maybe dangerous naivety if you're assuming that workers in the field of domestic and family violence and sexual assault are there by coincidence. Um, And I guess this naivety potentially negates or exists in denial of the overarching reality that while the vast majority of workers in the field are women and non-binary folk, this majority exists adjacent to the poignant reality that one in six women have experienced at least one sexual assault since the age of 15.
0: Kat, myself and many women who work in this sector straddle all sides of the state of play when it comes to violence against women in this country. We hold the key to freedom. We were able to help formulate what another person's after can look like. But we also stood on the locked sides of that door once upon a time and demanded entry. We also survived.
2: And whilst there can be a sense of hopelessness and, and anger in the frequency and proximity of sexual assault in our community, I think like with a lot of collective traumas, there's a comfort in that collective and a sense of feeling seen and heard and challenging that denial and minimization together.
0: When Kat refers to collective comfort, she's acknowledging truth that exists in spaces of crisis work that often these answering the phones and tending to anguish that exists in the communities already know what it feels like to make the first call, or to lock eyes with yourself in a dusty mirror and see a woman lost and hurt, the outline of who you once were.
2: And I guess that it's worth noting that trauma is subjective, and so the healing of trauma is also subjective, and so there's no expectation that victim survivors have to engage in that sort of thing. Um, But... A lot of the time, what people have lost with their experience of sexual assault is a voice. And so getting that back through doing a group or or facilitating a group or writing a policy submission can be really impactful for people.
0: As reported on The Lookout, a website initiative designed for workers supporting women's safety in Victoria. Given that one in four women will experience family violence in their lifetime, it's not unusual that sectors made up predominantly of women will find that amongst their employees are those like us, those who have survived domestic abuse or even experiencing it concurrently. It's a complex line in the sand to draw when you're met with a client who has lost the spark in her eyes, the way you once did, who described her husband in comparable ways, who looks to you for help. The human instinct is to hold, to share, to reveal in your own tale of recovery. But as The Lookout suggests, sharing your personal story can shift the focus of the conversation. Sometimes you're expected to leave your background out. But how? When it informs every decision you make. In the groups of abuse, victim survivors often describe feeling a sense of absence. A kind of dull and yet ecstatic nothingness. The feeling of being far away from the woman you once were. The woman you want to be. Who was I, if not this? Who am I, if not surviving? When the shackles of that fall to the wayside, be it through leaving or otherwise, and you're left with a sorry reflection and echoes of what once was,
2: who is looking back at you? You are both coming from a really similar story, that each of those stories have their own intersectionalities and, and levels of vulnerability. Um, but there is this kind of, I guess, one one shared chapter, one shared narrative that's really empowering and, and really impactful.
0: But working in the sector and simultaneously existing as a survivor means being looked at, being perceived. Even if the woman on the other end of the line or sitting before you isn't aware of your past, it means being an image of recovery. Whether that image feels fully formed or not, but what happens when the woman looking at you to you for solace resembles all that you know, all that you once were.
3: The highest rate of domestic violence is perpetrated against Aboriginal women and brown women and Muslim women and women of disadvantage. So, you know, we need those women of all those nationalities and, and whatnot at the table making these decisions writing these programs for their communities, looking through the lens that they see domestic violence through. Thanks
0: for calling. I'm just gonna ask you a few questions, if that's okay. Are you in any physical, immediate danger? Do you have any children? Are you safe? Early in my career as a housing support worker, I met Fatima, a Muslim woman who with three young children required a refuge. There was something in her story and the life she had tried to forge despite her husband's relentless abuse that reverberated through me. It was a familiar tale, a chapter in a long and enduring book I knew well. Her expression was knowing and curious because in me, she saw a depiction of recovery, of hope that isn't always readily accessible in how we make sense of abuse in this country.
1: The community is incredibly wary of um, legal systems and and police systems and government services because they have also been the victims of those very things for such a long time. There is a reluctance to actually report. Roughly 50% of all
0: domestic and family violence goes unreported. But for the Indigenous community, that number is predicted to be much higher.
1: When black women report abuses, they're often asked to, to prove it. This in turn makes black women not want to report domestic abuse. And this in turn drives up cases of domestic abuse. Perpetrators know that black women are unlikely to report because of the response they get. Therefore, more abuse, more murders. The white woman was able to close the door and breathe a sigh of relief having been assured that her perpetrator is in custody. The black woman closed the door, knowing fully well that he's around and she's in trouble and nobody cares.
0: When Hannah Georges made sense of herself as a rape survivor, not once did she consider going to the police. Her rapists still occupied the campus grounds she once enthusiastically wandered through. The campus grounds that promised her a future laced with promise. Seeking legal assistance would be a game of roulette. A complex and deeply institutionalized pursuit of justice. As to be a good rape victim, she writes in a column in the Guardian, is to immediately report your assault to the police. Even knowing you will likely never see justice. But to be a good black person is to avoid the police entirely, because your life quite literally depends on it. The tightrope walk's an impossible. What is the tightrope walk that Middle Eastern women face in Australia? Which worlds do we straddle as we float above heights we can't possibly understand? What happens when a Muslim woman needs saving from the hands of her abuser? in a world that has decided still that her identity is up for analysis, that her recovery or liberation requires being saved from her very own religion.
2: It was very hard for, for people to understand and acknowledge that we can provide a service to di- a diverse group of women. So every time we were in a space, it was like as if we were the service users instead of the service providers, you know? So we had to cut ca- across all of these hurdles
0: when my client looked at me though she was able to see all sides of the chasing she was able to understand what it looked like to waver about in the unknown all the while having to home love and nurture three children three young children she shared with a man who met her with disdain and violence Rather than promising to resolve each of her fears, I could promise her that I was familiar with them. I knew them well, and I would do everything in my power to help.
3: You can have all the education in the world you know, around this topic, but if you haven't lived it, then it's a, it's a different level of knowledge when you've lived some It's like someone, you know, like a drug addict saying, well, you should just give up drugs, but you've never touched drugs in your life. You don't know what that feels like to have that, that feeling like, I don't don't do anything now for the woman that you see before you. I base my experience and my education stuff on the woman that was running from this man, you know, for 15 years.
0: I catch myself in parts, be it in the reflection of my car mirror or in a passing window, or while washing my hands in the Patricia Giles Centre bathroom, where I have worked now for nearly a decade, Women enter my orbit, various stages of, or looking towards,
2: thereafter. We are in a very privileged position in someone's life and we have been chosen or we've been reached out to, to walk alongside someone in potentially one of the most impactful moments or journeys of their life. Um, and that's a real privilege to, to be able to do that with someone. They look at me and I look back,
0: promising only to see them to help them flesh out what they are after ought to resemble. I see them because they deserve to be seen. I see them because I am them. I want to thank Karina, Kat, Ashley and Maha for their contribution to this episode and for their tireless work in the sector. This season is supported by the Victorian Government through Creative Victoria and UNESCO Melbourne City of Literature and is kindly sponsored by the Victorian Women's Trust. You're listening to Tinder, a Broadway production about what happens once women leave abusive relationships. This season is created by Madison Griffiths, Bit Atkinson-Quinton and me, Roya Atmar. Until next time. Broadway. 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 Broadway! Broadway!
1: Broadway.